Bill Clinton grew up poor in the South, and he, you know, we've got a number of presidents in a row who grew up who grew up poor. That becomes like sort of important. And single mom. Most of his friends are black growing up, um, and and then he is a hippie. <laughs> um, he is the first baby boom president. Like H W. Uh, fought in World War II, I think, or maybe Korea. Um, but he's like, he's a he's of the generation that fought World War II. And Bill Clinton is of the generation that he protested against the Vietnam. He had a big beard. Like, people of a certain generation find Bill Clinton to be the representation of everything that happened that ruined America. And that's why they're so obsessed with three things that to our generation don't totally make sense. Number one, why are they so obsessed with whether he smoked weed or not? Like, <laughs> what is that about, right? Uh, the answer is that for them, if he smoked weed, that makes him one of those hippies. And those are the people who lost us the Vietnam War. And that is when we lost who we are. And so that's evidence of that. And him saying, I did not inhale, which is a ridiculous statement that he made about like smoking weed, was his way of trying to get around the core of that charge. The second thing is, why are they so obsessed with his sex life? Which, granted, he was a person who was cheating on his wife regularly, um, and who we now know had some pretty questionable um, sexual encounters at times in his life. But this is not new. There's a lot of previous presidents that had done like had done this. He's not like JFK. Um, the way they ask about his sex life is again related to this idea that he's from this generation that is like sexually deviant. He's like known to be this like charming guy who has had a number of affairs and women have come forward saying both that they had affairs with him and some of them saying that he sexually harassed them. Um, and this is the era, you know, it's under... George H.W. Bush, that the Clarence Thomas hearings take place, where Clarence Thomas, who is a black man, who's a conservative judge, who's nominated to replace the first black judge on the Supreme Court, who was Thurgood Marshall, who was like the incredible civil rights leader who argued Brown versus Board. But, you know, he leaves the court and then the Republicans have to nominate someone and they feel like they can't replace the only black justice with a white justice. So they find the only black guy who, you know, is capable of making the kind of conservative arguments that they want. Turns out he has had some pretty questionable sexual harassment of his staff. And on national television, Anita Hill, this woman who had worked um, for him and says that he set, made all sorts of really gross sexual comments to her and pressured her to have sex with him, um, you know, testifies that this is the case. And people, including... Democratic senators like the guy who led that committee, a guy named Joe Biden, um, were very skeptical of these women who are coming forward and talking about sexual harassment. And part of this is like this shift from like the Don Draper era where it was just totally cool for men to use their power to sleep with their secretaries, but also to just talk to women in this way that was really inappropriate. And like the switch from that through the feminist movement of the 70s and women really coming into positions of power in the 80s has left a certain generation of men who just thought it was okay to be like that. 
And I think Clarence Thomas fits into that category. And I think to some extent, Bill Clinton fits into that category. Um, but the way that the right wing felt about Bill Clinton's sex life was related to their feeling that this country was coming apart because of a certain lifestyle that came from these hippies and that included um, women who were sexually liberated. And also because he was up against a Republican Party that was now in big ways controlled by the evangelical you know, right wing which is different than an earlier generation of, you know, like Nixon against Kennedy. You could have made a big deal about his sex life, but for a whole variety of reasons, maybe the biggest of which being that like Christianity wasn't like core to the feeling about what had happened to the conservative movement. Um, that wasn't there. The third thing that people hate about Bill Clinton that doesn't make as much sense to our generation is they hated his wife, Hillary Clinton. Um, she's the first woman to run, to basically run as a political figure. Like when, he, when they ran, when he ran for president, it was clear that he had an egalitarian marriage with her. She herself, they had met at Yale Law School. She was a very ambitious politician and lawyer in her own right. Um, and it was, it's just clear from watching them that they had a marriage that was unlike any of those 1950s marriages where they actually worked together and talked to each other and respected each other. Even if Bill was not always faithful to her, his relationship with her was clearly um, one of a different type of respect. And she was a feminist. She had given the first commencement address by any woman uh, at Wellesley, um, you know, any student. She had been in a bunch of news articles as like, this is the rising young feminist. And so part of the backlash to women like Hillary is a backlash that's specific to the Clintons. And she is viewed as this like conniving woman who's gonna control the president. And when Bill Clinton runs and says, when you vote for, when you vote for me, you're getting two for the price of one. <laughs> that to a lot of people felt like this cool empowering message about you know, respect for women. And to some other people that felt like she's not a politician, like this isn't allowed, you can't do that. Um, anyway, there was hatred for Bill Clinton that was so deep that Toni Morrison ends up saying that he's the first black president. And what she meant by that has been kind of lost. <laughs> but, but what she meant by that was the way that his life was really questioned had this element of delegitimacy that later President Obama, the actual first black president, would face. And also that he was a man, because of his background, uh, who was very comfortable with black people and played the saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show and um, you know, spoke in the black church very comfortably. And there was an extent to which this felt threatening to a Republican party that had built its modern electoral success on a Southern strategy here he is from the South, and he's competing in Southern states. Um, still, he probably would not have won that year if there wasn't also a third candidate in the race, Ross Perot, who was a really strange oil businessman from Texas who self-financed his own campaign, and his whole strategy was that he would buy 30 minutes of television time on the air, and then with pie charts, he would explain what he thought was wrong with the economy. 
And he was like really nerdy and weird, but people found it to be um, like refreshing. He wasn't like a slick politician at all. And he was also very skeptical of trade. He was famous for talking about NAFTA as this vacuum cleaner that would create this giant sucking sound of jobs. And so he like starts to build this movement that will eventually crest with Trump that is saying that the real problem is that free trade um, is destroying American industry. And I, I, I mean, the truth is it's a lot of factors, but this created enough support that at one point in the campaign, Ross Perot was ahead of both George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Now then, you know, when people get to know him, it, there's some strangeness to him and it, it just sort of starts to erode his support. Um, and he drops out of the race and then he decides to come back into the race. And you, there's some really good radio documentaries about the question uh, that, that I think 538 put together about the question of whether he actually through the race to Clinton. And I think the better answer is not that people who were going to vote for HW voted for Perot himself, but actually that people who were skeptical of HW switched to Perot. And then Perot drops out of the race the night that Bill Clinton is giving his Democratic National Convention speech, and he's a really good public speaker. And so a lot of people who had just seen Perot drop out of the race and kind of blame it on HW then tune in and get seduced by the seducer in chief. Why did Pro drop out? He decided he couldn't win. But then he went got back in. It sounds like he had a lot of support like he could have won. Yeah, but he was dropping in the polls. It's unclear. It, it was pretty clear he was not going to win. Hmm. But um in a three-way race in which Bill Clinton got way less than 50%, he still managed to win the electoral college and knock out George H.W. Bush, who oh. a few months earlier after the Gulf War seemed unbeatable. It's a wild election. And some of the wildest is watching the three-way debates between these guys, where the most notable thing to me is the level of sort of generational disdain that H.W. Bush has for this guy. He just like feels like it's beneath him to be on stage, particularly with Bill Clinton. Like, why should this hippie kid who never served in the Vietnam War get to, and who is a, you know, dirty, pot-smoking, sexual deviant get to talk to me? When did you watch these debates? Uh, when I was accidentally uh, drugged on uh, cough medicine. <laughs> okay. So Clinton wins kind of barely, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he wins, and it, it feels like a technicality. And from the beginning... Um, he's seen as sort of illegitimate by a lot of Republicans who, who immediately start questioning and investigating what's going on with him and particularly what's going on with Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. And they attempt, he puts Hillary in charge of um, trying to pass national health care, which has been one of the dreams of um, Democrats since Harry Truman, who first proposed it. But it's always been kind of circumvented by... Uh, particularly groups of doctors who think it's going to lower their um, f their salaries and uh, like the AMA had opposed it repeatedly and by insurance companies. And they come up with this plan which um, gets named Hillary Care because it helps fit it into this narrative that Hillary Clinton, she's the first lady. She shouldn't be in charge of making legislation. Um, 
the plan is a plan to get universal health care. It's actually more aggressive than Obamacare because it involved people having to change their health insurance plans. And the Republicans attacked it as something that was going to get between people and their doctors. And then in 1994, so two years into um, Clinton's term, a group of ultra-conservatives... Um, take over the House of Representatives, led by a guy named Newt Gingrich. And Newt Gingrich, who is a movement conservative who had um, been part of the Reagan revolution, as it was called by then, um, made this deal called the Contract with America, where he said he was going to cut deficits and um, prevent the growth of big government. And it's pretty common two years in for presidents to lose control of the House or Senate, or to at least lose seats, because the people who are most pissed off about the outcome of the previous election show up and vote, and the people who are just feeling good about the person they voted for are less likely to show up. And Clinton never gets control, uh, I don't think, ever gets control of the House and Senate back. Particularly the House immediately starts investigating, and they're, they're, they just have this feeling that there's something up with Clinton. And they start by seizing on this land deal where the Clintons end up getting control of some real estate that made money. And the question is, were they, was it some sort of corruption while he was the governor of Arkansas? And there's this big committee that starts looking into this deal for this whitewater. And it, it is not, the fact that whitewater like sort of reminds you of Watergate because it has the word water in it is like... <laughs> I think it's like not a coincidence. Like it's helpful that that's the name of the investigation. Ultimately, they never managed to find out that anything improper was done with Whitewater. But the Clintons are trying to prove that they're clean and they haven't done anything. And in so doing, they allow for the nomination of a special prosecutor. And a special prosecutor is what you do when you're trying to, since Nixon, when you're trying to investigate the president and you want to make sure that it's like separate from the president's own control, that he can't interfere with the investigation. And so the Clintons allow a special prosecutor named Kenneth Starr to be named to investigate Whitewater. Uh, meanwhile, the economy is doing great, um, but Congress is basically so obsessed with deficits and uh, Clinton is actually, because the economy is doing great, he's actually paying off the, um, he's running surpluses for some of the first time in a very long time. But still, Congress wants to try to keep government small. This is when you have Grover Nordquist, who's like this Republican thinker who says we should make government small enough that we can drown it in a bathtub. And there's a government shutdown where basically Congress refuses to pass a budget unless Clinton will accept um, these huge cuts and Clinton refuses. And so in the government shutdown, they have to like take a bunch of offices and say, we don't have any money to pay you. And it's this kind of showdown where Clinton and Gingrich are facing off against each other. And there's a lot of late nights and people you know, going on television and saying it's their fault. Sometime in the middle of this, Clinton gets a blowjob from Monica Lewinsky. 
an intern who's like 20 or 21 years old. So young. So young. Really inappropriate, obviously. Um, but not illegal. <laughs> you know? And it just, it like, obviously be a pretty... I mean, okay, let's 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 do both versions of this. What an what a creepy idiot. <laughs> like, what was he thinking? How, how could someone that smart and aware of how the world works do something like that? But how does this end up leading to a, a huge um, investigation, which ultimately, uh, leads to his impeachment. Well, this is where we have to remind ourselves that the word impeach means to accuse someone of a crime, oh. and then to be convicted requires the Senate to vote. So using their special investigation powers that they've been given through the special prosecutor to investigate Whitewater, which again is about a land deal in Arkansas, has nothing to do with the president's sex life. They... Um, eventually call in President Clinton and put him under oath to testify. And while under oath, they ask him whether he had sex with Monica Lewinsky. He says, I did not have sexual relations. So it's not sex, right? And so now the whole country says that if oral sex is sex, then the president is now a criminal because he lied under oath. This is how crazy the 1990s are. The whole, and, and so then, and I had to explain this to a group of seventh graders recently. Then the question is, okay, well, if he lied, how could they ever prove that he lied? Two different ways, both of which are insane. The first is that Monica Lewinsky had a much older friend who, without anyone asking her to, secretly audiotaped herself having conversations with Monica Lewinsky about having sex with the president so that she had evidence that was later able to be brought in. So Linda Tripp is the worst friend, the friend who secretly audiotapes you're talking about your sex life, yeah, and then hands it over to Congress. Um, and I think she claimed that she was concerned about her younger friend who was in this, like, weird, exploitative sexual relationship. Um, also, in the recordings, um, Monica Lewinsky says that she had a dress that Bill Clinton's cum got on and that she didn't wash it. And there's like DNA testing of the dress that, that, that Congress goes and gets the dress. Like, I, I think they required her to hand it over as part of an investigation into the president's crime of perjury. Kenneth Starr writes a report called the Starr Report in which he outlines in detail exactly how the president had sex and it's very graphic and the whole country is thinking about Kenneth Starr, who's the special prosecutor, who's gone from investigating, let's remember, a land deal in Arkansas into investigating where did the president ejaculate and why. And the whole country is watching it on CNN, which, you know, we should just tie all of this back into the Republican um, 
anger at Bill Clinton's legitimacy as president, um, at their concerns about his sexual deviancy, um, and at a conservative movement that's more determined than ever to undermine the growth of government and that sees Bill Clinton as a really charismatic Democratic president who's dangerous to them. Um, this is actually not very popular with the public. The public has the same reaction that you and I are mostly having here, which is like, are you serious? Like, do we really have to go? Th I mean, certainly there were parts of the public that were shocked and concerned about this, and everybody did watch it and read about it a lot, because how could you not? This is the beginning of America as a reality television show, which has only fully come to fruition in the last few months. Um, but Bill Clinton, um, okay, all this happens in his second term. There's already scandals coming in place, but he wins re-election um, pretty handedly against Bob Dole and Ross Perot again. But he only becomes more popular uh, near the end of the Lewinsky thing because people are just like so anti what happened in Congress. But then they hold an impeachment case and they vote on an almost, I think, exclusively party line to impeach him for perjury, which... Granted, he did lie under oath, but should that question have been brought under oath in the first place? Um, the Senate says this is ridiculous and they don't convict him. Amen. The Senate's more moderate. Yeah. And it includes a lot of Republicans um, who recognize the fact that this has gone too far and who didn't come in as part of this like Gingrich like movement. Also, it comes out, by the way, that Newt Gingrich, who led this whole thing, was cheating on his wife at the time that he was leading this, while, by the way, his wife was in the hospital with cancer. So he's pretty discredited. And Bill Clinton's pretty popular. And we should also note what Bill Clinton's policies were. <laughs> now that we've discussed his sex life. Um, Bill Clinton was part of a movement to make the Democratic Party uh, the kind of modern business party. Um, and it's part of a worldwide movement that you see with Tony Blair in Britain, um, where basically as a reaction to Reagan, um, Democrats decide, okay, instead of seeing ourselves as the party of big government, we're going to like cozy up to yuppies and... We're going to stop trying to be tight with labor unions, and instead we're going to kind of double down on like professional, highly educated people. And Bill Clinton is able to kind of hold together the whole coalition because his policies are like very pro-business, um, but he's still able to like talk to people in Arkansas. Um, but he, you know, in his inauguration, he says the era of big government is over. That's his phrase. And then he passes welfare reform. He's the one who... Um, you know, makes it way harder for black women and also, by the way, tons of white women to um, get welfare benefits and, and has this idea that you have to work to get welfare, um, which, you know, some of the elements of the welfare state hadn't been changed for a very long time and needed modernizing. Um, but this is not what you'd expect from a democratic president. And in some ways, it's like the Nixon and China effect. It's effective because he has the credentials of a Democrat to do this. But he also passes NAFTA um, and passes a number of pretty tough on crime bills that 
push mass incarceration further. So he talks about this as triangulation, which is basically the idea that there are liberals and there are conservatives and he's going to be somewhere in between. And especially this is important once Congress is controlled by the Republicans. And so if he's going to pass anything during this time, he needs to be able to work with them. So he governs as a fairly moderate um, president and even compared to like FDR types, fairly conservative. Um, but because the economy is doing so well and the foreign policy is in this post-Cold um, War era where the United States is really um, the only superpower, he ends up um, intervening in a lot of um, humanitarian situations, including in Kosovo and Serbia um, when the genocide is going on there um, and not in Rwanda. Uh, in 1994, in part because after sending troops into Somalia to try to put down um, a civil war situation there, um, U.S. troops were killed, and so he was nervous to send troops into Africa again. He ultimately says that his biggest regret as president was not intervening in the genocide in Rwanda. Mm. Um, hmm, feels interesting to think about the Rwandan genocide for a second instead of the Lewinsky scandal. Why is this what we have to remember about the Clinton administration? Because way, way more time was spent, way more time was spent talking about what was the president's sex life than all of these like important things that were going on. So the Democratic Party under Clinton changes from the party of the working class um, to a party that's about professionals, and, um, but that retains its support among minorities. And that's like the beginning of what will be kind of the Obama coalition. Um, but under Clinton, he's still managing to win enough of the white working class to win Arkansas and Louisiana and some other states that today would seem impossible for Democrats, at least on the national level, to win. <laughs> 